Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. Kalpona Akhtar is the Executive Director of the Bangladesh Centre for Workers' Solidarity, a labour NGO in Bangladesh. She's a former child worker who started work in garment factories when she was 12. Kalpona set up the Bangladesh Centre for Workers' Solidarity in 2001 to campaign for improved conditions in the garment industry. Like many labour organisers in developing countries, Kalpona and her colleagues have experienced significant repression for the work that they do. In 2012, unknown assailants abducted, tortured and killed Kalpona's colleague, labour union organiser Amanul Islam. April 4 is the five-year anniversary of his death. I had an opportunity to speak with Kalpona about organising in the garment industry, and here's that discussion. So I started uh, working when I was 12 years old with my 10-year-old brother. And I had to start because my father got sick and and could no longer work. So there there was no one who can bring food in the table for seven in the family. So um, the working condition, of course, was horrified. It was 16 to 20 hours long in shift that I used to work. In a month, I was making $6 working over 450 hours work. It was, uh, you know, unsafe building. Even there was fire in my factories when I was working. Uh, it, it, because it was situated in a residential building, there was only one staircase, and half of that used to block by the merchandise. Um, often we uh, we used to get slapped by the man- you know mid-level managers, uh, even for a minor mistake. Verbal abuse was very very common, and you know the retaliation when we would raise our boys. Like when I, um, I, up to age 15, I didn't know that how long I should work, how long um, I should pay, and is there any law that can regulate? So I hadn't any idea. So in that time, uh, the management in my factory just announced that they're going to cut our overtime pay. And we said no, and we went for a strike. And we, uh, you know, fear our strike has forced the factory owner to give our pay uh, as we used to get. But they said that they will pay for this month, but they will reduce from next. And also, um, they fired uh, the strike organizer, though I was one of them, but they didn't fire me, but they fired my coworker. And then, you know, we have contacted by the, some organizers uh, in, from some, or, you know, federation that they can help us uh, with the, uh, you know, helping with the legal issues so our co-worker can sue the factory owner. But something interesting, they said that we can go and sit down their uh, legal, uh, legal level of training. And that was something interesting. I didn't know that. So I went for the training. It was a four-hour-long training that changed entire my life. 
And when I came to know that there is a law, it says that my work shift should be eight hours a day. That says that there is a mandatory wage system that says that there is a law that, you know, regulate all aspects of the work I do, that inclu- including the building that I work in. Um, and also it says that the government is supposed to monitor and ensure these uh, laws are respected. So I th- and one beautiful thing I came to know that I have, have right to organize and right to bargain with my factory owner regarding my rights. So, you know, that's something amazing I learned, and I started organizing. And since I never stopped. So this is my story, basically. And since I uh, started organizing, it was, you know, painful, of course, because uh, facing all this harassment, intermediation, losing colleagues, uh, you know, uh, in the jail, or uh, one of them has been bitten to death. In that balance, so, um, but I never stop. I stand up for change, and I will do that. It is quite an extraordinary story, and thank you for sharing about it. Uh, as we go through the discussion, I want to. I'm going to ask you more specifically about your organising, but I actually wanted to pick up on something else you talked about because you mentioned a, a factory fire, and and health and safety in the garment industry has made international headlines with the collapse of Rana Plaza, the fire at Tazreen. Um, and these are just two examples, and your example is a third of what what is an endemic problem, not just in Bangladesh, but the global garment industry. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think that is? Why are these workplaces so susceptible to fires? Um, <clears throat> it is always happening because of the profit greed from the factory and from the brands as well, because there is a regulation, but... Uh, you know, those are not implemented. That's the one big problem. Like, Adrana Plaza would not happen if the factory would uh, follow the building code. If the brand would do the structural, uh, you know, inspection prior to their placing the order. So they haven't done that. Tajreen the workers would not die in that factory if those doors would be not locked when workers are working in the factory or when there was an emergency, they were trying, you know, they were crying and begging to open the door, but there was no one that can be open the door and let them go. And the result, it is 112 workers died in that fire. So it is all happening because the law and uh, sometimes the law is not implemented and sometimes the regulations are weak. So and in of course the the corporate greed is one of the big problems. And still talking about health and safety. I mean the garment industry is a predominantly female workforce and I think there are some very specific health and safety issues to do with women workers that almost gets um, obscured uh, because of the male domination of the union movement. But for instance garment workers in Indonesia have really drawn attention to this particular issue and I wanted to ask you if it was your experience too and that is of sexual violence that work, whether the, f- the threat of that violence is used to suppress industrial organising or if it's actually used as a weapon against women workers? Yeah. 
wall is a great question. So the first of all, yeah, the the garment industry in Bangladesh is predominantly, you know, mostly the women workers are, okay? A, over 80% of them are. It is true that they are not aware about uh, their health and safety. If we talk about the personal health and safety or reproductive health, none of them they aware about. Majority of them even don't know that what that means. And regarding the violation, especially the sexual harassment, I would say like in a in a package, the sexual and gender-based violence is, is pretty common there. So, um, you know, the culturally we have been taught not to talk about it. You women, if you talk about it, you'd be the bad person or you have done that. Men didn't do anything. So there is a huge, uh, the gender-based violence existing in those factories, but nobody talks. So we need to break the ice. If you go, you know, ask our government or the factory owners, they will, you know, one word they will say, no, there is no gender-based violence or the sexual violence happening in the factory, but it does. It, of course, does. And many times, this, uh, I mean, I think most of times these women don't speak out on that because, because of cultural taboos. And we are working on that to break down that, that women need to talk about it. And if, we, if they don't talk, the solution will never come. Oh, your answer to that just really highlights why it's so important to have um, women workers in leadership positions in unions leading and raising the demands of the workforce. True, uh, true. And my next question is very similar because there, there I see a a range of demands, um, industrial demands that are raised by women that again would be obscured um, with male-dominated union leadership. And and my next example actually comes from the Philippines, again from the garment industry in the Philippines. And I don't know if you recall, the there was a fire at a factory called Kentex, which was a, um, a, a shoe and yeah, foot... Yeah, shoe factory, yeah, yeah. That's right. So... 70 workers died or were killed in that factory fire, but the count didn't um, include any children. And what the workers in that factory say is that because there are no childcare provisions, because there is no, um, because people are so poor and the whole family is at work, and you talked about being a, a worker when you were a child. So this factory was full of children because there was nowhere for them to go. Their mothers were at work. They had to bring them with them. And those children perished in the fire, but they weren't included in the the death toll of that particular particular factory fire. What's the situation in Bangladesh in relation to childcare and what do whole families that are working in a factory do with their young children? Well, um, first I wanted to respond to this male-dominating union. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of like universal problem that we are all being facing. So if we just, you know, give an example of the union that uh, in Bangladesh, yeah, majority of them are dominating by the men. So the women's issue do not come uh, in the mainstream. So, like, for example, the first of all, it is so difficult to, you know, uh, run the union there. We have uh, more than uh, 400 factory union registered, uh, but it is <coughs> a few... I think it is less than 50 of them are functioning. And if you go through the union charter of demand, 
basically it says that you know the factory should implement this law and that law so but still we are you know stick to the basic so when these you know women dominating industry do the union talks about women's um, maternity leave do they talk about the daycare center no so you know to respond to the uh, last piece of the uh, last piece of the question that what about the daycare systems uh, in there and you know responding to that before i should say that what is the maternity uh, you know leave and benefit looks like so it is a law entitlement that worker women workers should receive four months leave with pay so we call maternity leave with benefit um it is um uh, enforced but not throughout the industry maybe a good percentage of the factory are respecting that but still a huge number don't don't giving this facility to their workers and the care center you can see that i mean it's a, I, I couldn't even say the percentage if any percent you know one percent or two percent factory even respecting this law or set up a real operational daycare center in their factory. But, you know, if you uh, visit the factory, uh, you will see there is a room, um, especially during the audit, they set up a room and clean up and keep like one or two babies, sometimes no babies, uh, just show to the brand that they have a daycare center. But when the brand leaves, is become a you know a storeroom or some other reason they're using that room. So this is the daycare center system, and there is a lack of I mean there is no daycare system in the community as well. So what happens? These these women who come you know migrated them from the countryside to the city for the job to learn what is the economic freedom is to know what is the women empowerment is. Soon as you know they start learning that. Soon as they get married and babies. They just, you know, went back where they started because uh, they quit their jobs and they go back to their villages. So this is what happened, you know, uh, uh, because of lack of daycare center in the community as well as in the factory because factory, it is entitlement, factory didn't enforce that. So, um, and the last question you had regarding uh, what happened an entire family if they work in one factory. For garment industry, you know, it is very rare you're going to see the children and mother uh, working today because the child labor issue uh, is not like 100% eliminated, but, you know, I would say it is over 95% or 98% has been eliminated. You're not going to find child in the export-oriented factory, those uh, situated in the city or outskirts. Maybe in the remote areas, you're going to get them or in the subcontract factories. So it is not a pretty common these days that you're going to find a whole family working on one factory. But <clears throat> factory like Tajreen or Rana Plaza, we have to experience that like son and mother and maybe uh, daughter-in-law working in the same factory. Uh, son was able to escape, but daughter ha- son-in-law, uh, sorry, uh, son was, uh, uh, was able to escape, but uh, mother, you know, mother died in that factory, or sister was able to escape, but other sister was died in the factory. Sometimes the husband died, wife was, uh, you know, about to uh, escape from that death, sorry, deadly factory. 
So this has happened. I mean, this is definitely a disaster for a family losing their beloved in in a factory where they work together. And it is this is all happened because uh, the law and regulations are not implemented in the factories that they're supposed to do. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. I'm in conversation with Kalpona Akhtar, the Executive Director for the Bangladesh Centre for Workers' Solidarity. And of course, when workers collectively organise against these conditions, and this is what you were talking about earlier, you face very serious repression. And you mentioned one of your colleagues that was tortured and killed, so beaten to death. Can you paint a picture of the situation that dissidents, organisers, activists like you face for doing the work that you do, organising against the conditions and against the bosses? Sure. I mean, for us, it is not easy to work in their, uh, you know, work that, that we are doing uh, to improve working conditions, to have workers' voice in the mainstream. It's so difficult for us. It is that much difficult that whenever we try to raise our voice to increase the wages, which is definitely poor at this moment, like the normal is $68 a month, um, which is not enough for one person to survive in Bangladesh, let alone entire family. So with, with over time, they might be getting few bucks more, and but it is still not enough. So uh, whenever we, we were supporting workers' voice to increase the wages, every time we had to face this harassment and intimidation and all bogus charges, that brought against us by the employers as well as the government. And it is difficult, it is, sorry, it is happened in, in back 2010 when I was in prison for a month with my coworker. Um, uh, it has happened just two months ago when workers in Ashulia, um, uh, yeah, Ashulia is an outcast in Dhaka. Uh, when workers raise their voices uh, to increase the minimum wage or review the minimum wage, responding to their bees, the the government and factory owners show resistance. They brought 11 different criminal charges, um, arrested 39 workers and labor leaders. They faced two months imprisonment. Uh, they're released now, they're released on bail, but is still facing all these criminal charges. Other hand, it about thousand workers has been fired, and many of many hundreds of them has been blacklisted. So you know, not only that. I mean, I lost my coworker who was one of the you know senior organizer in our center, and for his advocacy, he lost his life. He has been disappeared, and later we found uh, later police has been found his body, and it is clearly evident that he was beaten to death. So, and it, this, uh, I mean, all happened because who is our counterpart? Who is our opposition? It is, it is uh, not only the factory owner, it is factory owner and government together because my legislator is my factory owner. Uh, 70% of our parliamentary members, directly or indirectly, they are with the government business. They're with the RMG business. So, uh, you know... Whenever um, we, we raise our voices for worker 
freedom of association rights or wages or safety, we need to face this circle of harassment and intimidation. Well, given the dangers that you face in being an organiser, how do you empower and support others to take up the baton? How do you maintain the fight against the bosses by training and bringing in new organisers to face the kind of repression that you've just described? Uh, well, um, so <clears throat> it should be connect uh, with the word that I, I mean, with the time when I started working in the factory or I started organizing. Like when we're facing uh, these, uh, earlier I mentioned that when I was in the factory, the uh, the factory manager was saying that they will cut our pay. So during that time, my mom was saying, my mother, she was saying that if there is an injustice, uh, someone needs to stand up and speak out. If it is someone, she asked that, why not you? So then I started organizing. So my strength coming from there, okay? And the second strength I had that I have gone through these abusive working conditions. I know how it is feel toiling the life in the factory for 11 hours to 14 hours a day and making poor wages, having no voice. So I just, you know, I know it is dangerous. I know my life in danger. I know my many of my co-workers life in danger. They know that that too, but we just know that someone is between stand up to make these changes. And if it is someone, why not me? I can't do that. And given everything that we've talked about in terms of how hard it is to change things in the garment industry, what do you say is the strategy to fight back and win? Um. Yeah, so when I, I, you know, when I wanted to mention about the strategy, before I go there, I wanted to say that there is some improvement. When I give, like, all this hopeless thing that we have been facing, some, you know, uh, advantages there as well. So one of them, you know, when we had to experience this on a plaza and Tazreen, in compared to that, what changes we have now? So one change is that, you know, after... Bangladesh code on you know fire and building safety uh, start, has been started work in Bangladesh since since they started working in in there and started inspecting all those factories um, structurally fire and building uh, electrically structurally and um, uh, fire so they were able to inspect uh, over 800 factories. And throughout their initiative, and few other initiatives was, uh, you know, running in the same time. So all these initiatives has made a huge change there regarding health and safety. Um, especially, you know, um, I would say that maybe we would not experience any more Rana Plaza touching fashion in back home. So um, uh, the death toll that we had to experience before, that is not there. So one improvement definitely has been done, but we need the sustainability of them. So when we talk about what is the strategy to overcome all these, you know, why this Rana Plaza, uh, I mean, after Rana Plaza, why this code has been signed? It's because um, the consumers, the global union, the global NGOs, the work, you know, workers 
in Bangladesh and the unions, we all together, we worked on uh, this accord and asked the international grants to take more responsibility. And we asked them to sign on this legally binding agreement and ensure their responsibility to make this factory safer. And then that worked out. And I'm mentioning that, that international voyage, international pressure is extremely important in Bangladesh. So who is listening now at this, uh, you know, this, this show? My ask would be that your voice really, you know, crucial for us. It is extremely important. Please, um, uh, you know, you, you can to know what is the condition of the workers are in back home. Uh, maybe, you know, that make you sad, but I would say, don't be sad, just make yourself angry. And whenever you buy a clothes made in Bangladesh, please, of course, do buy, because not buying is not the answer. So whenever you buy made, in, make a clothes, uh, made, made a clothes in Bangladesh or elsewhere, like in Pakistan or Cambodia or Vietnam, Buy it, but in the same time, raise your voice. As start asking questions to the store manager that you wanted to know more about these clothes. You wanted to know more about the workers behind at this level. Are they treating well? Are they, you know, paying well? Do they have union voice? Are they working in a safe, you know, working place? Trust me, your voice will make a difference. You may think that one voice will not make a difference, but it does because your Asking in the store manager will ring bell in the top. They have to report on that. So the strategy is to have international voice, to have international pressure um, to the uh, factory owners in Bangladesh as well as to the government, and this will make a difference in back home. And at the same time, ask the brands to add few cents more with the government. They're sourcing from my country. That few cents will not make difference to their profit, but it will make a huge difference to the workers in back home. It will make a different wage for them or living wage for them. That was Kalpona Akhtar, the Executive Director for Bangladesh Centre for Workers' Solidarity. And I wanted to particularly acknowledge the five-year anniversary of the death of Amanul Islam, a labour union organiser and colleague of Kalpona. They were arrested together, they served time together, and ultimately, Aminul Islam was bashed to death by forces opposed to workers organising. And that's all we have time for on today's program. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.